listening to On the NBA Beat on Almighty Baller Radio, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant, to shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Aaron Fishman, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. Lauren will join me in just a little bit. At the moment, the Boston Celtics and Washington Wizards are engaged in a figurative tug-of-war to determine who'll meet the Cavaliers in the conference finals. Boston leads 3-2 as the series shifts back to D.C., and that'll be the focus of today's episode. Inside will feature interviews from both perspectives, starting from Chase Hughes, who covers the Wizards for CSN Mid-Atlantic. Fun fact about Chase, he appeared in a Sharknado 3 scene alongside former Congressman Anthony Weiner and Brian Mitchell and Ryan Kerrigan of pro football fame. Also helping us save the world from misunderstanding this playoff series is second-time guest Michael Pina of Vice Sports. So don't forget to stay tuned after the break. I'm pumped to talk about what I think is the most exciting series in this postseason so far. Arguably, I guess the Rockets Spurs is up there too. But welcome in, Chase. It's good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. So just jumping into it right now, the home team has dominated winning each of the first five games in the series. We have other series like Utah Clippers, for instance, where it didn't really matter In fact, five of those seven games were won by the road team. Here, the home team keeps winning. And as you know, the Wizards were dominant at home during the regular season, but under 500 on the road. I just want to dig more into that home away disparity. What do you think are the biggest reasons for why they've struggled so much on the road? And how heavily do you expect home court to factor in the remaining uh, two games of the series? Yeah, there's no question it's factored in a lot. Um, And I guess that was to be expected with the Wizards because during the regular season, they were so good at home. You know, they had their most home wins since the 80s. They at one point went on a 17-game home winning streak. They shoot just a a much better percentage at home than on the road. But I guess it's unexpected because the Celtics were obviously very good at home, but they were also arguably the best road team in the Eastern Conference. So They've really struggled in Washington. It's only been two games, but coming out of those two games after game four, I think a a lot of us who had covered it said, man, the the Wizards look like they're going to win this series. They look like they had completely taken over the momentum. Of course, that all shifted uh, back in the other direction in Boston. For the Wizards, you know, I think there's some guys that that struggle a little bit more than others on the road. John Wall, you kind of always know what to expect with him no matter what. Uh, But Bradley Beal has had kind of a mixed bag in the playoffs on the road. Um, and this has been the case for them going back to their last series. You know, this postseason, they're one and five on the road, but they haven't lost yet at home. And it's been a storyline all season. Basically, the reason that, that a lot of the players give is just, it sounds simple, but the crowd. Um, and John Wall's kind of gone into the most detail about this, saying that it really affects the momentum of the game before the ends of quarters, coming out of timeouts. Uh, when they go on a big run uh, at home, it's a lot harder for the other team to get back into it. And when they go on a big run, as we saw in games one and two, when they started game one, 16 to nothing, started game two, 16 to eight, the other team can get their crowd back into it with a quick run here or there. And that's what they were able to do and win those games. So like I said, it sounds simple, but the players 
swear by the fact that they think that the crowd makes a huge difference, despite the fact that, you know, the Wizards don't exactly have the best uh, attendance or the, the best uh, home court advantage in a traditional sense. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. And you would think it's a good thing for the Wizards to get some home cooking in game six. But then again, of course, they didn't have home court advantage going in. So if they were to win game six, they'd have to win on the road in Boston. So you have to hope that a lot of those young guys who don't have that playoff experience can find a way to perform well on the road if it gets to that critical game seven. I think another big reason, though, why it's been such a fascinating series is the bad blood between these teams. We saw during the regular season, we are certainly seeing it during this series with all these technicals and ejections. To what extent did you expect it to be this crazy, and how exciting does it make these games? I knew that there would be some bad blood between these teams because it dates back really to the last season um, when Jay Crowder got into an argument with their former coach, uh, Randy Whitman, and accused him of using some obscenities. And then Bradley Beal had his nose broken against the Celtics and, and had a concussion and, and has kind of always held that against them. And then all the bad blood this season between the confrontation between Wall and Crowder after that game in Boston, you know, the funeral game that the Wizards had and you know, John Wall was ejected from a game for a hard foul on Marcus Smart. We knew that there was some bad blood. And after that Wall and Crowder instance, uh, you know, the, the police had to intervene behind the scenes in Boston to make sure that they didn't go after each other. So we knew it was there, but the extent of the way it kind of boiled over in game three, I don't think any of us could have predicted. You know, you mentioned the technicals and the ejections. There were eight technicals, three ejections. And, of course, Kelly Oubre's shove of Kelly Olenek earned him a suspension, and that kind of highlighted it all. But, of course, there was Brandon Jennings and Terry Rozier. They also have a history dating back to earlier this season. Um, I was pretty surprised at uh, not only that game, but when you really kind of took a step back after it and tried to put it in perspective, how crazy it truly was. You know, I've been covering you know NHL, Major League Baseball playoffs. This is my first NBA playoff series. I had never seen anything quite like that in any sport. And, you know, it was interesting hearing ESPN. They made a big deal out of it, trying to compare it to some of the biggest playoff brawls and biggest playoff fights that we've seen really over the course of NBA history and especially recently, it kind of stacks up well to some of the ones over the last 10, 20 years. So I think it's the type of game that we'll probably remember for a long time, regardless of how this series ends and regardless of whether this series turns out to be better than it has, because there have been kind of a good amount of blowouts. Speaking more on that Ubre Olenek incident, that shove by Kelly Oubre earned him an ejection from Game 3, a suspension from Game 4, obviously. He played a combined five minutes in those two games, but Washington was actually able to sort of weather the loss of him and defend really well in those two games, especially in terms of how they were able to contain Isaiah Thomas. With that in mind, do you think that affects or factors into how they use Ubre now in the lineup in the remaining two games of the series? Yeah, it's an interesting uh, debate, honestly. And, uh, you know, it's something that me and other Wizards writers have talked a lot about because basically he missed two games. You know, he was ejected from that second quarter in game three. And both of those games, the Wizards played their best basketball, not only of this series, but probably of the entire playoffs. Defense was a major issue last night in Boston. But the thing is, that's what Kelly Oubre usually helps with. And he had a pretty good game. He had 13 points, I think three rebounds, two of them offensive. And, you know, defense is his calling card. That's basically the one thing that you can really rely on him to provide value with because he can switch 
from the point guard to the power forward position. He's got a 7-2 wingspan. He's quick. He's big. He can kind of wreak havoc on the defensive end. So he's, he's a nice kind of weapon to have at your disposal off the bench, and Scott Brooks has used him this year. He's used him against point guards. Um, earlier this season, he did a really good job against Isaiah Thomas in a game in Washington. So um, it doesn't really make sense that, you know, you re- remove him and all of a sudden the defense would be better. You'd think that the defense would improve with him in the fold. It is an interesting debate. I, I wondered how he would reincorporate Kelly Oubre, you know, before last game because Otto Porter and Boyan Bogdanovich at the same position had played really, really well um, in his absence. And what he ended up doing is not playing him in the first quarter, kind of bringing him back a little bit slower and bringing him in the second quarter. By then, things were already slipping away. So it'll be interesting because Oubre can technically help them defend the three-point line, and that was a major problem last night. It's been something that they've had trouble with throughout these playoffs. But, you know, like you said, the results haven't kind of followed. So I I wonder if he'll try to get a little bit more creative, maybe use Oubre even more sparingly than he did in uh, this past game, at least early in the first half. Uh, knowing what was working in games three and four. And speaking more on the defense, specifically on Isaiah Thomas, ever since his game two 53-point performance, Washington has pretty much been able to hold him in check. They've been forcing the ball out of his hands more. In game four, he didn't take a free throw, which is very atypical of him. What specific adjustments have they made in how they guard him? Well, they've made a, a few adjustments, most notably uh, throwing two or three guys at him, trying to double, triple team him, especially when he gets into the lane and, and defending without fouling with their hands up in the air. They did obviously a really good job in game four, like you said. I think they've also done better, at least in games three and four, they did at making him work more on the defensive end, letting him not kind of save his energy. They did a good job with backing him down with Otto Porter, Boyan Bogdanovich, and you know, in game four in particular, uh, Bradley Beal was able to do that, got into a rhythm early because of it. But I think in game five, what Isaiah Thomas did a good job doing um, as an adjustment is once he got in the lane, first of all, he, he shot seven free throw attempts, which is much more in line with what he averaged during the regular season. But also he got a little bit better at finding open guys once the defense collapsed on him. Um, I think he had nine assists in the game, and I think he did a, a very good job at finding open three-point shooters. The Celtics made an adjustment, and it really worked to have him get in the lane and I think pass earlier than he probably was trying to pass in games three and four before the defense can truly collapse. And they found a lot of open looks, and the Celtics just got completely hot from three. I think at one point they were seven for 11 from three. You know, Al Horford was three for four. Uh, Avery Bradley had uh, four of them in the first half. He was unstoppable. And a lot of them were open looks, uh, at least early on. I think once they got into a rhythm, the Wizards couldn't stop them. Even contested jumpers were going down, sometimes, you know, rattling around the rim and giving them a shooter's role. So I think Isaiah Thomas did a really good job early in the game of helping the rest of his team get in rhythm. He still got 19 points, but it was almost uh, that he, he made much more of an impact as a distributor, which is not something that you're used to seeing from him. Right. Usually the game plan of stopping Isaiah Thomas's personal output and making the rest of the supporting cast beat you is usually one that works out for the Celtics opponents. But moving on to uh, Washington's own superstar point guard, John Wall, he's just had a tremendous series and playoffs overall. This past week, in an interview with Rachel Nichols, he said that in recent years, he's been working more on his change of pace, not just going full speed every possession and just really using that change of speed and change of direction to uh, get his defenders on their toes. What... Do you think the Wizards need for him 
in order to win the final two games? Well, they need him to shoot a higher percentage. You know, he had a very good start to this series, and he's still getting points and still getting assists, but he's only shooting about 40% from the field. And uh, that's, you know, much lower than what he did this season when he had a career year in that category. But in terms of changing speed, you know, I think you really see his speed now on the fast break. And sometimes it's when the defense is a little bit slow to get back on defense. He can, you know, on a dime, turn a normal play into a fast break. I mean, with the ability, his ability to get to the rim, it's unbelievable. So I think in this series, they play better when they're playing fast. And that's, of course, comes down to John Wall. But really, he needs some help from his teammates. I think you really look at Bradley Beal as someone who needs to have a better series. John Wall has had a, a very good series, I think, overall. And that hasn't been as efficient as normal, but I think overall he's been pretty good. Um, but I think he, he needs some help from Bradley Beal. If Bradley Beal could get going, I think you'd see Wall's percentage go up naturally just because there'd be less attention on him. And Bradley Beal hasn't really been able to make them, the Celtics pay outside of game four. So uh, he's someone that I, I, I think really needs to start holding up uh, his end of the bargain. When you look at this team and, and how their two best players are John Wall and Bradley Beal in the backcourt. One area I've been paying really close attention to is Washington's defense. They had a really good stretch in the middle of the year where everything was clicking. They were good on both sides of the ball, elite even. But after the All-Star break, there were periods where the Wizards' defense was just dreadful. We've seen in this series, after the strong double-digit first-quarter leads that the Wizards jump out to, Boston's offense adjusts. Conversely, the Wizards' defense looked really strong in games three and four, and then again took a step back in game five. What is it about their defense that they need to improve? And are we likely to see that the rest of the series? Uh, Because I think that's been their biggest weak point. Well, yeah, there's no denying that in this series, they've been a lot better defensively at home than on the road. When you look at the Celtics in Washington, they're shooting 39%. In Boston, they're shooting about 52%. So that's a major difference there. For the Wizards, I think the, the biggest difference between their defense before the All-Star break and after it was defending the three-point line. They were top 10 in the league before the All-Star break in opponent's three-point percentage, but after the All-Star break were 29th out of 30 teams. So they really, really struggled with it. Um, I think a lot of that falls on John Wall, Bradley Beal, and Otto Porter, of course. But also there was you know, some changes made to their team. They brought in Boyan Bogdanovich in a trade with the Brooklyn Nets. And defense isn't really his forte. Uh, you know, he's much more valuable on the offensive end. You know, Brandon Jennings, it, I think, brings some value to their team and, and his ability to kind of push the pace and, you know, distribute the ball. Um, not the most reliable shooter and certainly not the most reliable defensive player. He, you know, had a lot of trouble against Dennis Schroeder in the first round. Schroeder would just blow by him pretty much uh, on the regular. So uh, defense, I I think has taken a a little bit of a step back for them um, in part because of some chemistry changes to their, their lineup and the addition of two guys that, you know, are, are much more known for their abilities on the offensive end. And that plays right into the Celtics hands because during the regular season, they were third in uh, three-pointers, both attempts and makes. So they like to spread the floor. And when they get hot, they can get really hot. We saw that earlier in the series, you know, in game one, Jameson, or I'm sorry, uh, Jay Crowder hit six threes. Isaiah Thomas was lights out from three, and especially the first game and the second game in, in Boston. Last night, you know, as I mentioned, even Al Horford was three for four. 
Avery Bradley was knocking him down. Kelly Olenek, who times the series had been missing open threes, uh, was hitting them. So the Wizards had a lot of trouble with them spreading the floor last night. And if they can't turn that around, if they can't correct that, then I, I don't think they're going to be able to force a game seven uh, because that's something that the Celtics want to do. And when the Wizards have been at their worst defensively this year and in this series, it's been the three-point ball that has really hurt them. I think it's important to highlight fast break points as well, led by John Wall, obviously, who's lightning quick and has just a, a great ability to get into passing lanes and then just score in transition or set up his teammates. The Wizards are very good at doing that, but the Celtics in the two games in Boston to start the series actually won the fast break points battle. And then in games three and four, the Wizards flipped the script. But then in game five, Boston scored 15 fast break points just in the first quarter alone. And a lot of those weren't actually from turnovers. They were on long rebounds or John Wall would go to the basket, he'd miss a layup, and then there'd be a rebound by the Celtics, a great outlet pass, and then Washington just couldn't get set defensively. Is that an important issue to pay attention to them getting back in transition and actually winning the points in transition department? Yeah, that was a lot of the talk with Scott Brooks today. You know, how did they let things slip away so quickly on the fast break in this game and and what can they do to adjust? And Scott Brooks said that, you know, there was probably a a few times where they were complaining about calls and not getting back on defense quick enough. But he made mention of the fact, and I think he may have said this last night as well, that there were a lot of times where they were on the ground. And, you know, I think John Wall is probably who he was referring to. You know, you make a good point that there were a few plays, especially earlier in the game, when Wall would fly to the basket and miss a replay and not get the call and find himself out of bounds on the ground and just have no prayer to get up and then chase down Isaiah Thomas or Avery Bradley or something like that. I think the Celtics did a fantastic job of contesting him at the rim and not getting fouls called on them. And I think they also did a really good job of turning just defensive rebounds into fast breaks. You know, Avery Bradley had a a few fast break plays um, in that game that really stand out. And, um, I think that just comes with the Wizards missing a lot of shots. You know, they shot horribly from three. Uh, They shot under 40% from the game, I think 24% from three. So that's going to give you a lot of long rebounds. And uh, Al Horford and and their bigs did a good job, uh, Jay Crowder, of converting those into fast breaks, uh, getting them right into the hands of Isaiah Thomas and pushing the pace. So there's no question that was kind of the story of game five, at least early on, and something that is certainly on the mind of uh, Scott Brooks as he tries to look for corrections moving forward. I think more times than not, John Wall will get those shots to fall. But yeah, as I said, it just seemed like Boston effectively used John Wall's speed against him almost. As you said, he flew to the basket and then when he didn't get the call, he was on the ground or out of position and then not able to get back. And Boston just passes so well. So they were able to just get out and transition and just score before the Wizards really even knew what hit them. The um, bench is also another thing I want to talk about. So I think we'd all agree that Boston has a superior depth. That doesn't necessarily always matter that much in the playoffs with shorter rotations. But one would hope that the Wizards got more production from their bench. Bojan Bogdanovic, the midseason acquisition, can really get it going sometimes, but he's another streaky guy as well. Do you see him as kind of an X factor? And if so, 
what needs to be done to get him going? Yeah, no question. He's an X factor. Um, I think, you know, once you look beyond John Wall and Bradley Beal, if, if you're looking for a boost on offense, someone to kind of take the pressure off of him, he's certainly on the short list. You know, you're probably looking at him and Otto Porter and, you know, Marquise Morris every once in a while can get it going. But, you know, when the Wizards offense is at its best, it's because Boyan Bogdanovich and Otto Porter are knocking down three-point shots because the way they've designed their roster when it is playing to its capabilities, works really, really well. And that is with John Wall pushing the pace and transition and finding open three-point shooters you know, that are maybe forgotten about from the defense, just trailers that he can hit. And I'm not sure I've ever seen anyone as good as John Wall when running at full speed, being able to find open three-point shooters. I mean, it's, he finds them from all sorts of angles, jumping up in the air, finding guys who are behind him. He knows where they are, where their spots are, and he can find them at their spots. But if Bogdanovich and Porter both go cold, and there have been times in these playoffs where both weren't shooting well, uh, it can really change the dynamic of their offense. You saw Bogdanovich last night you know, miss a few open shots. There were some times where Jalen Brown was guarding him and, and giving him a lot of trouble. So he's been kind of an interesting guy to evaluate these playoffs, and even just this series, because you know, it was in game two, he only played eight minutes, seemed like he was out of the coach's favor, and then he came back, had a fantastic games three and games four, it's almost up and down by the day how the fans view him in terms of that trade because, you know, he's a, he's a rental. He's a restricted free agent this offseason, so technically the Wizards could resign him. They, re, they could retain his rights. But they gave up a first-round pick and a pair of players to get him. And that first-round pick ended up being, uh, I think it was the 22nd pick. You know, when he doesn't show up to play, it's very easy to say, oh, well, man, that first-round pick would look pretty good right now. But then after game three and game four, it was like, oh, of course it's worth giving up those picks if they can go to the conference finals, you know, for the first time, yeah. uh, basically in 40 years. Uh, it's very hot and cold with him, and certainly he's an X-factor and someone who can change a lot of things for them. So we've highlighted the venue making a big difference and transition points, among other topics, but rebounding, to me, looks huge. When Boston hangs tough in the rebounding department, they win. And when Washington asserts its dominance, then they seem to win. How do the Wizards do that? Is that a likely scenario, in your opinion, for them to, again, win the rebounding battle by double digits here? Yeah, I think that just comes down to, or at least in this past game, it came down to uh, them just missing so many shots and so many threes. You know, Marquise Morris really didn't pull his weight in terms of rebounding. I think he had five boards in the game. That's not good enough for him. But I think there were just so many missed shots that that allowed Boston to kind of get back into the rebounding margin. I think it was around halftime I looked at it, and the Wizards were up big. I mean, like they have been for much of the season. They were, I think, leading by either double digits or close to it um, in the rebounding margin. But in that second half, as the Wizards continued to shoot poorly, Boston was able to climb back and really take advantage of it. And as we've already discussed, turn those into quick, fast breaks and, and, and points on the other end. I think especially marching Gortat has a size advantage over most of the players on the Celtics or whoever's guarding him. He posted a double-double in each of the first three games, but became much less of a factor over the last two games. I think as a response to Brad Stevens going to his super small lineup more often, Brooks has taken Gortat out of the game a little bit earlier. Do you think he should be able to exploit that size advantage more, or do you think it's a necessity to have Gortat not on the floor when Boston's going to their small ball? Well, I think it also has a lot to do with, uh, you know, Jan Mahimi coming back. 
Martin Gortat hasn't made a pretty big impact, especially offensively in this series. There have been some moments for him, though. I thought he did really well in uh, Game 4 in particular on Isaiah Thomas when he would get past uh, his man and get into the lane. I think Gortat did a really good job of making contact but not getting calls, you know, defending without his hands, and, and just kind of exerting that advantage in size on the Celtics. Now, there have been a lot of times that we've seen this year when Jan Mahimi's healthy, and that has obviously been a big question. He only played, I think, 31 games during the regular season. When he's been healthy, Scott Brooks has often liked to side with him in the fourth quarter in particular. Uh, whenever he wants defense, he goes to Jan Mahimi because Mahimi is really, really good at it. I mean, he's their best defensive player based on defensive rating. He's their best shot blocker. He gets steals. He affects just a lot of shots in the lane. So I think now that Mahimi's back, from injury, that's just going to naturally take away from Marcin Gortat's minutes. It's also, of course, going to take away from Jason Smith's minutes. We haven't seen a, a whole lot from him since Mahimi came back. So that's how I would kind of explain it. But yeah, there's no question that Gortat has been a little bit inconsistent in the series. When he's been good, though, he has been uh, very valuable for them. As we mentioned earlier in the show, around the middle of the season, Washington went on a really hot stretch going 28-9. and They got off to a pretty rough start starting out 6-12. and 12. Then they went on that 28-9 and nine run until the All-Star break. And then, as you said, after the All-Star break, they were sort of integrating those two new pieces and they finished a mediocre 15-12. and 12. In that 28-9 and nine period, Washington was 5th in offensive efficiency, 6th in defensive efficiency, looking really dominant. Do you think there's anything that can be recaptured from that run with their current personnel in this series? Well, for one, uh, they did have a lot of home games in that stretch. And they, like I said, they won 17 straight at home. So that would certainly bode well for this upcoming game or, or else basically their season will be over. But the biggest standout of that stretch that could help them now would have to be Marquise Morris. I mean, from basically early January until the All-Star break, he played almost at an all-star level. I mean, he was averaging 17 points and eight rebounds a game, doing a really good job defensively against stretch fours. He was basically living up to the hype that he had as a first-round pick. And uh, it, it was a really interesting time for the Wizards because they all of a sudden had the best starting lineup in basketball based on a lot of different numbers, or at least the best starting lineup in the Eastern Conference. And, it, and he was just kind of the glue that brought it all together. Very few teams in the league can boast uh, a power forward that can do all the things that he can do when he's playing right. It's just about consistency for him. So if they could get, you know, Marky Morris from January and February back, then um, I, I think it'd be very tough for Boston to, to keep them in check. But as we've seen, he's had an inconsistent series. Obviously he's been dealing with some health issues with a badly sprained ankle, but he was able to come back in game two and have a really good game that first game back from the injury. So it's hard to tell how much of an excuse you can use for that, but, uh, there's no question he's an X-factor, too, because we've seen some extreme highs and extreme lows for him this season, and he, he's really helped the, the Wizards play at their best when he's kind of scoring on the offensive end and also rebounding, which is very important for him. And how would you grade the job that Scott Brooks has done this season? In his first year coaching the Wizards, he led them to home court advantage in the first round. When he was on the Thunder, he was often criticized for maybe not doing more, for not meeting expectations and a perceived lack of creativity in terms of his sets or how he deals with his rotations. How has he improved on that in Washington? I think so. I, I would give him a very high grade, maybe even an A for this year, because I thought he did a really good job early in the season 
when they started out two and eight of not panicking and making sure that they were able to rebound and have the 49 win season that they had. I thought he did a fantastic job earlier this season dealing with a bench that on paper was probably one of the worst in the league. And until they got help at the all-star break, I think he did a, a fantastic job at times of making them essentially play at replacement level, like an average bench when on paper they really weren't. So I thought he did a good job there. He obviously has benefited from some health improvements for John Wall, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter. All three of those guys had career years, and you know that'll help any coach. But I think he's done some things behind the scenes to help them have those years. You know, all three benefited from practicing less this season. I think they logged a lot of minutes, probably more than they should have, but they compensated for that. Shorter practices, sometimes giving guys days off. Uh, you know, like today, they didn't practice in between playoff games. And Scott Brooks said that, you know, that's something they learned this year, kind of really helped them out. I think that there's something about the personnel, too, that really fits Scott Brooks' system. I think him and John Wall are a match made uh, in heaven. You know, you look at some of the statistics that Scott Brooks' teams in Oklahoma City put up, and the Wizards offensively did a few things that those teams never did. Uh, They scored more points this season than any of those Oklahoma City teams ever did. And, of course, they had Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden, three guys who, if Durant didn't get hurt this year, probably would have been, you know, on the very, very short list of the MVP discussion. They scored more points. They, at one point, scored 100 points or more in 22 straight games. That's longer than any of his teams in Oklahoma City ever did. So there's definitely something that's been unlocked about his system uh, that had never been unlocked before. But uh, really, if I had to point to one thing, it would be his handling of the bench when he really had to mix and match some guys that really probably didn't deserve a roster spot on a playoff team that you know went to other teams, went to the Brooklyn Nets and didn't really make an impact. Marcus Thornton was cut soon after. So he, he kind of made some lemonade with some lemons, and I think he did a good job of that. And I think certainly the bench will be something that they want to address this offseason because what he had to do with the bench, and especially Mahimi being out and the domino effect that had, is not ideal and not something that they would prefer to have happen. And one final question for you before we let you go. I want to ask about Bradley Beal's breakout season. In this series, as we mentioned before, he's been really streaky in terms of his shooting. We already mentioned about how he needs to hit more of his shots, especially to alleviate the pressure on John Wall. But has he been able to make any sort of positive difference in the game, even when he's not hitting from outside? And how does he get his shot back on track? Yeah, well, first about his breakout season, uh, health has to be mentioned just because last year he only played in 55 games and it's been a problem for him his entire career. This season, he finally was able to stay healthy and you saw what he's capable of. But he also improved in a lot of different ways. Uh, He's always been a good two-way player. He's always been good at catching and shooting, but I think his shooting percentage went up way, way up this year, up over 48%, in large part because he improved uh, with his ball handling skills. Now he can break people down off the dribble. You just see him doing moves, you know, little tricks with the ball that he didn't do in the past that just kind of show how much more confident he is. Not only can he get around defenders, he can finish at the rim with contact, with more confidence than he's ever had. He's got a a very good step-back jumper that he has even said that he thinks is one of the best in the league. So he's been able to create more for himself and also for others. We've seen him do some things this year in the offense that we haven't seen in in years past. You know, maybe that's some of Scott Brooks just trusting him, but he's been able to run the offense as a point guard and run pick and rolls with Marching Gortat and, you know, break down the defense and find three-point shooters, much like John Wall can. 
And there's not a whole lot of you know, shooting guards around the league that can do that. So I think he's taking his game to a brand new level in that regard. In this series, I think you've seen him make his most impact on the defensive end, at least when he's playing his best. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, the trouble they were able to give him, particularly in game four, I think Bradley Bill deserves some credit for that. He's been able to really guard him full court, play him pretty physically, and, and really frustrate him. Now, what's frustrated Bradley Beal on the other end of the floor offensively, I think is similar because Marcus Smart and uh, Avery Bradley are such physical guards, such good defensive players, particularly Bradley, who's former first-team all-defense. They've done a good job of being physical with Bradley Beal. Jay Crowder is also someone who's been able to do that, bumping him off his spots on the perimeter, making him not feel comfortable. And Jay Crowder said it earlier this series that, you know, they scouted the Wizards so well that they know the plays as soon as they're called out for Bradley Beal. So I think they kind of know what's coming before it happens. When they run different sets off screens, they know where he's going to go, what he likes to do. And Bradley Beal hasn't really been able to adjust. And I think in, in any sport, that's really what separates the good from the great is when the rest of the league, when their opponent adjusts to you, what do you do to counteract that? And how do you kind of always stay ahead of the opponents? And he hasn't been able to do that for the most part this series. Chase, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. We got a lot of great information from you from the Wizards. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And, uh, you know, if they continue in these playoffs or if you want to do this again sometime in the offseason, feel free and give me a call. We'll be right back after the break with Michael Pina of Vice Sports, who will give us the Celtics' perspective on this series. Hey guys, I'm Sean Darenthal, host of O to Odin, the NBA Draft podcast. On Tuesday, May 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, the fate of franchises and players alike will become a little clearer as the top three picks in the upcoming draft are decided at the NBA Draft Lottery. I'm lucky enough to join Cole Zwicker and Javier Pasqueda, great hosts for another NBA Draft podcast, What's on Draft, for a live interactive stream of commentary and questions Tuesday night as the lottery itself unfolds. Please join us then and follow us on Twitter at What's on Draft Pod and Ode to Odin for more information and a link to the stream. Now back to your show. Hey, Michael. Thanks for joining us for your second appearance on the show. Glad to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. The series between the Celtics and Wizards is 3-2 right now in favor of the Celtics. The home team this year has actually won every single game in both the season series and this playoff round every time the venue changes there seems to be such huge momentum swings given the game five performance from the Celtics do you think that's promising in that they just need one more win or do you think the Celtics still should be worried about how the first four games went yeah so I mean heading into the series I thought that neither of these teams could guard the other one so it would basically just be who can, you know, outscore the other team. And I know that sounds really silly, but it's kind of played out that way where both defenses have been terrible. Both offenses have been awesome. Heading into game six in Washington, I don't think they should be all that optimistic, to be honest. You know, we saw what happened in games three and four and game four, particularly if they were looking for some optimism, uh, the first half when 
you know, I think it was tied at the half or the margin was within two or three points. You know, they played them extremely tight. Isaiah had a really nice first half, even though they were overloading defensively on him. Uh, He was making smart plays. And then there was obviously that 26-0 run that just kind of ended the game and eventually led to a tied series. But at the same time, the way that the Wizards came out in Game 5 was... Kind of kind of embarrassing. I didn't expect the starting lineup especially to play as poorly as they did. But if I had to, you know, pick a, a winner for, for game six, I would lean towards the Wizards just because of that home court discrepancy. Uh, and then the Celtics have to be feeling good about the fact that they have home court advantage. And, you know, that's the reward you get for being the one seed in the East. So they'll have a game seven at home, and I would be surprised if they dropped two in a row here. Yeah, in game five... The Celtics were able to get out to a good start for once in the series. They won the fast break point discrepancy 15-0 in the first quarter. In the previous games, Boston was really getting blitzed in the first quarters of the series. We had a net rating of minus 39 in those quarters. What was going wrong there for Boston? And was there any specific adjustment that they made in game five? I think the big difference in terms of the fast break points in game five versus the previous two was just their ability to contest at the rim with Horford and Amir Johnson. I think those two guys had tremendous starts to the game. And John Wall is, from all reports, 100% healthy. He did not really look it to me from where I was sitting. Granted, I had you know terrible seats, but just the fact that he wasn't as explosive, even just in the half court, you know, Horford was able to smother him and, and he hasn't really had that much success. I thought it was one of the best defensive performances that Horford's had in a Celtics jersey. And, you know, when a team attacks the, the paint, misses a layup, Boston's ability to then just turn those those misses into offensive opportunities was really what sprung their quick lead in the first quarter. and. I think when you look at the Wizards on the other end and how they came out and were so successful in transition, uh, I think a big factor is just the Celtics turning the ball over constantly, especially in the second half of Game 4. And, you know, they did a much better job holding onto the ball and running a better, more controlled half-court offense in Game 5. And I think they'll look to do that again moving forward. But Turnovers are a killer against this team, especially with a guy like John Wall who feasts in transition. Speaking of John Wall, he had a career year and he's having an even better postseason. But game five, so even though he had 21 points and he made a couple threes, I think that if you look at how Boston limited him to four assists and only one steal, that's a huge moral victory if you're Boston. Do you think that they have a reasonable chance of replicating that in either Game 6 or Game 7 if there is one? Yeah, so I wrote about this today in a piece about Avery Bradley. And so the Celtics started this series putting Isaiah Thomas on John Wall in the first two games. Bradley guarded him a little bit, but at the beginning of both those games, Isaiah Thomas was his primary defender. And, you know, Wall, as he should, kind of wreaked havoc a little bit. And then in games three, four, and five, Brad Stevens switched things around and he put Avery Bradley on wall and he put Isaiah on Brad Beal slash Otto Porter. And, you know, obviously Avery Bradley is a much better defender than Isaiah Thomas. And I think that he's done a tremendous job just slowing wall down in those high screens. 
He's so good at spinning below them and then meeting Wall on the other side. You know, not too many guys can do that. Wall is one of the fastest players probably in NBA history. So I think the move to put Bradley on Wall was a big shift in the series. And it it harks back to the decision Stevens made in the first round when the Celtics put Gerald Green in the starting lineup and then were able to take Bradley off of Dwayne Wade and move him onto Jimmy Butler. And Butler kind of, you know, he had a couple superstar moments in that the last four games of that series. But really, Bradley did a number on him and really showed his value to this team. And he's doing it again. Washington has had these huge runs in games three and four particularly, but even in game five we saw it and and in some of the other games as well. What do you think it is about those stretches that makes Boston look so helpless at times? I know part of it is just turnover after turnover and then John Wall and company just get into transition. Is it mainly that or is it other factors too? No, I think you hit the nail on the head there, turnovers and then Uh, I think Isaiah Thomas had to make a huge adjustment individually. The aggressiveness of Washington's defense and their overloads on him, the triple teaming. You know, teams have put two on the ball and tried to trap him all year, but he's been so shifty and he's quick enough to skate through or skate around big man defenders. And it's really difficult to corral him. But they've been sending, you know, three guys when he starts to drive and he's seeing three wizards in front of him. So... I think his ability to move the ball, get off it as quickly as possible, and then guys like Jay Crowder, Avery Bradley, uh, even Marcus Smart, and of course Al Horford, their ability to make plays and attack a rotating defense or just you know knocking down open shots, I think that that's a thing that's been happening at home that hasn't really happened on the road yet. But since the Wizards have been so aggressive with Isaiah, if they do that again in Game 6, if I'm the Celtics and... Isaiah is able to get off the ball as quickly as he did in Game 5, then that might be a reason why the Celtics should be optimistic about winning. But just Washington's defensive overload on Isaiah and his ability to adjust to that is just a huge factor in the series. Yeah, ever since his historic Game 2 performance where he scored 53 points, including 29 and 4th in overtime, Washington has held him personally much quieter in terms of scoring output. What adjustments did they make other than just overloading him on defense to keep him that limited? And also, what impact can IT have when he's not personally scoring on the offense? Yeah, the one other thing that I would say about besides just their aggressiveness defensively, Washington's, is, you know, they make him play defense. And so, you know, the Celtics put him on Brad Beal uh, a little bit in the last three games and, you know, running him through screens, really banging him up a little bit in the post with Porter. And, you know, Kelly Oubre's suspension, usually the Celtics would have an opportunity to match up Isaiah Thomas's minutes as best possible with when someone like Oubre or we'll just stick with Oubre, when Oubre is on the floor and he can hide out there. But obviously he was suspended in game four and they didn't have that opportunity. That's a definite factor. And then just I think Brad Stevens did a really good job using Isaiah as a screener in Game 5 last night, and they ran a wrinkle that we haven't really seen this year, where Isaiah sets a screen for Al Horford right around the elbow, and they run this little pick-and-roll low low on the floor, and that's really difficult to stop. It, It reminds me of something that Doc Rivers does with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin, and not a lot of teams can do this because what you need is a big who can handle the ball that far from the basket, make plays with his head up, 
shoot if need be. So there's a lot of really specific skills that are needed to do something like this. Al Horford has those skills and, you know, he was a terror in those situations. So I think the Celtics will probably go to that look again because I don't think the Wizards really have a consistent defensive uh, strategy to slow it down. Returning back to Isaiah's defense, you had a pretty interesting article on Vice earlier this week where you interviewed the older Isaiah Thomas about Isaiah Thomas on the Celtics. And in that interview, the Pistons' Isaiah Thomas was talking about how he thinks the importance of point guard defense a lot is overstated. And maybe it's not necessarily that much of a liability for IT2 to be one of the worst defenders in the NBA. Do you agree with that sentiment? Uh, I think it's it's complicated, right? The Celtics are not good when Isaiah Thomas is on the floor defensively. They're just their numbers are terrible. They have been terrible all season long in any quarter, just about against any opponent, and that includes in these playoffs. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think Isaiah Thomas is 100% at fault for those numbers. I think that when offenses go out of their rhythm to particularly attack him, whether it be in the post or in an isolation, that not only allows the Celtics to load up and help, and Al Horford is one of the best help-defending bigs in the league, but it, it creates inefficient looks at the rim. You know, mid-range shots, post-ups, those are looks that the Celtics will take, and they're much better than John Wall in a high pick-and-roll with Gortat, which can you know slice you to death. So I don't know. The, the Isaiah Thomas thing is really tricky. Uh, one thing I will disagree with, all due respect to the elder Isaiah Thomas, one thing I will disagree with is just that offenses are definitely seeking him out uh, and trying to attack him. But, you know, there have been mixed results with that. So I don't know if that's the smart thing to do. And I think opposing teams need to tread water when conducting that strategy. During the regular season, the Celtics were one of the most prolific three-point teams in the NBA I think they were third in the NBA in three-point rate, and that's gone even higher in the playoffs. Against the Wizards, they're getting almost 30 three-point attempts per game that are classified as open and shooting a really good percentage from them. What are they doing specifically to get so many open shots, and especially in Game 5, hitting them? A lot of it in Game 5 was in transition uh, off those opportunities where Horford or Johnson would either block a shot at the rim or contest a shot at the rim. And then Bradley, Crowder, Isaiah, Smart, they did a fantastic job of leaking out early and threatening the Wizards from the three-point line with open looks. And then besides that, it's just, you know, when you play so aggressively on the ball, which the Wizards have been doing with Isaiah, guys are going to be open on the weak side that there's just it's very difficult to have your cake and eat it too so if you want to play that aggressively on Isaiah he has the opportunity to move it and you know that's how they get all those open looks and when teams specifically the Celtics that are so reliant on the three-point line when they miss it doesn't look great obviously and when they make it they usually are the winner yeah what you started out with in that response is something we talked about with Chase in our other interview, just that they were doing a really good job of leaking out into transition. And it wasn't necessarily that Washington was turning the ball over that much, but they were contesting well at the rim. Wall was missing these layups or their blocks or whatever it was. And then just great outlet passes and um, someone just running 
and being there to catch them, they just, they flipped the script. They blitzed the Wizards, basically, and the Wizards just couldn't get back on defense. So I think that was huge. I completely agree with you there that that played a large role in them getting more open shots. Speaking of getting more open shots and just looking more free and comfortable offensively, Avery Bradley, it's been night and day compared to games three and four. Huge game for him. And if it really mattered and they needed it, I think Bradley could have scored a lot more than he did. To what extent are the adjustments that he and the team made to free him more replicable over the next game or two? Yeah, so John Wall said after the game that he didn't notice any adjustments made by either side with regards to Avery Bradley. It was more a matter of him just having confidence and knocking down shots and even attempting shots. But, you know, it does go back to the transition game. And that's where Bradley started to get hot. He had a couple threes. I think he had a couple dunks. So Mm -hmm. those are plays that are kind of inexcusable, in my opinion, in game five of a second round series. Some things that you can control defensively, no matter what, no matter your personnel, and transition is one of them. And it looked like just like a wide receiver getting behind the safety on a couple of those outlets. And that's just like inexcusable, poor defense by the Wizards, where if they don't clean that up, then the series will be over in six. Yeah, I think that's a good point. There were plays that I noticed that Avery Bradley looked like he was slightly out of control or maybe stumbling a little bit, but he was able to compose himself and no one was really in the lane. So it wasn't really that difficult for him to just make sure he had control of the ball, didn't travel, and then just lay it up and in, basically. So he had, I think, at least two or three of those. Then he was hitting from the outside. I just want to bring up Terry Rozier. I think a lot of people at least from the outside, are very surprised about his impact on the Celtics this postseason. Are you? Yeah. Having seen him all season? (laughs) I am. You know, heading into the season, I was pretty high on Rozier as being, you know, he reminded me a little bit of Reggie Jackson when Reggie Jackson was on the Thunder as kind of like, I thought he would be a six man who could play between 18 and 20 minutes a game. Uh, score off the bench, run the second unit if need be, play some really good defense. And that was not at all who he was this season. I mean, he fell in and out of the rotation. He he lacked confidence offensively. His decision-making was off the charts in not a good way. (laughs) But then in the playoffs, like he looks exactly like the guy who I think a lot of people around the team expected to see all season long. I mean, he's hitting threes, which is a huge deal. Their ability to play four guards at once, him being one of them, and you know, really spreading teams out with four capable ball handlers spread along the perimeter, and basically all of them can shoot threes as well. I mean, that's really taxing for a defense. His ability to rebound the ball for his size, he might be the best rebounder pound for pound going right now, to be honest. I mean, he's really impacts the glass. He has ridiculous athleticism. There was a game last year when I was covering the Los Angeles Lakers when the Celtics were in L.A., where, you know, you sit on the floor for those games and he skied for a rebound and like... I swear to God, his head, the top of his head was like at the top of the box on the backboard. Like his vertical is just, it's surreal. So when he puts it together athletically and then the mental aspects of the game, he's a very special player. 
I've also been impressed by Al Horford's contributions, even if they don't always show up in the stat sheet. Just for us, if you can describe his impact, it seems multifaceted. Yeah, I love Al Horford so much. Like what he is and what he can do is one of the most desirable player types in the NBA right now, non-superstar. You know, a big who can protect the rim, who can defend multiple pick and roll coverages. He can blitz, he can sag, he can help and recover. And he's a tremendous post defender as well. Like Marcin Gortat cannot move him. You know, defensive rebounding is is a question, but he's really stepped it up, I think, when they go small and and he has to. Uh, And then offensively, he's incredible. You know, the Celtics aren't shy about letting him bring the ball up in transition. We just talked about the 1-5 screen and rolls that he he ran with Thomas in game five. His ability to knock down threes and space the floor. His passing, I think he's... Nikola Jokic is probably the best passing big in the league right now, but Al Horford is top three. So you don't find guys like this on trees. And it always made sense to me that they pay him a max contract. I know that that has been a divisive conversation among Celtics fans all season long because he doesn't you know, score 20 points and grab 12 rebounds a game. But the things he does do and the fact that his on-off numbers are always spectacular. They're really impressive, and his value is just through the roof right now. And I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but he seems like a a calm, level-headed veteran who can be a really important presence in a turbulent time like it's been around the Celtics, just with all the -the off-the-court stuff that's been out of their control. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, heading into the season, one of the things that people on the Celtics front office and players talked about was just his ability to provide that veteran locker room leadership. He's 30 years old. The team is one of the youngest teams in the league. And his ability to come in and be that leader, uh, he leads by example. He's a gentle soul and no one says a bad thing about him. That's a huge part of establishing a positive culture and establishing what they want to do in Boston with the youth movement that they have here. And, you know, it's really working out spectacularly. I think one of the most discussed events in this series, obviously, was the Game 3 incident between the two Kellys on each respective team. In terms of the reactions to it and I guess just the volume of people speaking about it, about Kelly Olynyk, especially, whether or not he's a dirty player. Draymond called him out on that. Olynyk's teammates vouch for him and say that he's not a dirty player. What's your opinion on that whole saga? Uh, I think that there are a lot of silly narratives that get floated around in any NBA season because of you know the 24-7 cycle of the vacuum that needs to be filled with controversial talking points. I think this is the most, this tops the list for me is the most ridiculous one. Kelly Olenek is, he's a little goofy and sometimes he can't control his limbs. You know, there's basically two plays in existence that really anyone can point to where he's a quote unquote dirty player. And, you know, the first was obviously the Kevin Love arm grab, which everyone would have forgotten about you know, three seconds after it happened, had it not have been a postseason ending injury for Kevin Love, 
that play happens regularly in basketball. And then the screen that he set on Ubre, I mean, it's a playoff screen. Like I, he got called for a foul. That's the end. And, and I thought Ubre completely overreacted and was right to be suspended. I, like I've watched every minute of Kelly Olenek's career, and that's basically it. So if that's what it takes to be a, a, a dirty player, I mean, there was a play in the uh, Raptors Cavaliers series where. I'm trying to remember who exactly it was. It was Shumpert jumping on DeMar DeRozan's back. I think that was the play, but it was... It, it sounds was, vaguely familiar. Yeah, it was... It was. I can't remember the exact people involved, but it was like a very physical, weird play. A foul was called. And it's like, if what Olenek did is dirty, then I don't know what that was because that wasn't even basketball. But yeah, he. I think Olenek just kind of stands out and there's other factors at play here. But no, I, I don't think he's dirty and I, I really don't understand why Draymond Green inserted himself into the conversation. Especially Draymond Green. But anyway, um, this is not going to be a bold prediction, Michael, but I'm with you that I think the Wizards should be favored to win game six, certainly with how the home and away stuff has shaken out. They um, should be expected to win that but also Boston has to feel good about a potential game seven on their home court so because Boston though is only one win away from an Eastern Conference Finals berth I have to ask you for your assessment on how they match up what chances they have of slowing down a Cavaliers team that has really been dominant offensively at least over the last series and we'll let you go after that and not take up any more of your time during the playoffs here. Yeah, so with regards to the Celtics matching up against the Cavaliers, I mean, the Cavaliers just look like a juggernaut right now. They look absolutely tremendous. LeBron James is he's averaging like 35 a game, shooting like 47% from deep on six threes, three-point attempts. It's crazy. And like his numbers just do not make sense. <laughs> otherworldly yeah and then the thing about the cavaliers is they have so they can play so many different types of styles they can be big they can go small they can spread the floor with big men like the love fry lineups with lebron at the three you're not really sacrificing size but you are still allowing space for lebron and the other perimeter players on the floor Uh, i think the LeBron plus bench unit that starts second quarters is just a killer for any team, really, because usually he is matched up against opposing bench units. And that lineup alone is just, it's very difficult to, to guard. It's LeBron with four three point shooters around him. And if LeBron himself is shooting threes, I mean, like, just forget about it. So. As far as the Celtics matchup, like I would be surprised if the Celtics if the Celtics did not win game one of that series in Boston, then it would probably be a sweep. If they did win game one, then they would probably lose in five games. <laughs> They're just too good. Like they just have better three point shooters. They have they have LeBron who does not lose in the Eastern Conference playoffs. And they have other matchup issues such as Tristan Thompson who regularly slaughters the Celtics on the glass. Kevin Love slaughters the Celtics on the glass. So it's it's tough. The Cavaliers would be heavily favored in that series, in my opinion. Okay. Thank you for your honesty and realism. <laughs> it's always fun talking basketball with you, but this series is just incredibly entertaining anyway. 
So I think that magnified the entertainment value of this. So um, yeah, we'll let you go, but we really appreciate you coming on again. Thank you so much for having me, guys.